0: Hello, and welcome to Pontifax.
1: I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this
0: is episode 44, Pope Boniface the First. If, uh, no, that won't even equal 20. I was gonna say, if he gets to be a pepper bull, can I roll 44? But that's... Not gonna get him. No, no, it wouldn't.
1: <laughs> no, no, not for old Bonnie or Bony Face. We'll just call him Pope Forty Four. You know it works. So last week we left things in quite a mess. <laughs> if you remember, Zosimus did not do a good job of poping.
0: No, he he did very poorly.
1: So, so terribly poorly. So we are going to have to see if old Bonnie can pull through for some reconciliation. So Boniface was born in Rome and his father was Jocundus.
0: Jocundus. Jocundus.
1: Yeah, it's a great name. It's perfect for that. And Jocundus was a presbyter. So we know that Boniface got an early start in church life. His entry to the church is fairly natural when your dad is in the church. And there are some strong theories that he was ordained to the priesthood by Pope Damasus, so sometime back in the 370s. And during the papacy of Pope Innocent, Boniface represented him as a papal legate to Constantinople.
0: Ah, that's where I recognize that. Yeah, he's
1: one of the envoys that was sent when Innocent was supporting the case of John Chrysostom and when Emperor Arcadius gave them such a hard time getting into the city. So we know that by the time that Pope Zosimus died in 418, Boniface had already had a very long, extensive career in the church, and was likely quite old. According to Father Albin Butler, he was, quote, a priest of an unblemished character, well-versed in the discipline of the church, and advanced in years when he succeeded Zosimus in the pontificate on the 29th of December, 418. Other sources say that he was old and frail at the time of his election, but was known for kindness and virtue, and a vehement defense of orthodoxy. Another article on the Catholic News Agency website says, Boniface was highly esteemed for his charitable and learned personality, which were clearly seen and lived through the service of his priestly duties. So this is a man who sounds perfectly poised to be Pope, with a great deal of experience. Unfortunately, the clergy was so intensely divided after all of the trouble started by Zosimus that even a man who seemed to be an excellent fit for Pope was not going to have a clear-cut election at this point in history. Not even close. And this kicks off right away, like on the day of Pope Zosimus' funeral. This is like a full-on tinderbox situation. So the funeral was held at St. Lawrence outside the walls, and while the funeral was happening, a small segment of mostly lower clergymen occupied the Lateran Palace. Some sources say violently occupied the Lateran Palace, which is possible, but most of the clergy would have been at the funeral, so I don't know how violently they would have had to be.
0: They probably just called someone a name from like the window. They might have like pushed and shoved the one
1: guy who had the key and is like, get out. And so they get into the Lateran Basilica and they hold their own election of an archdeacon called Eulalius.
0: That seems wrong because we were told that they're not allowed to do that anymore. Yeah. There's rules. There are rules. There are so many
1: rules. So, the other rule that they've broken here, which, by the way, after they have elected Eulalius, they decide that they're going to hole up inside, and when the higher clergy arrive and try to, like, re-enter the basilica, they are kept out or repelled through violence. So, there's that. And then, the other rule that they broke is, apparently, at this given time in the church, An election for a new pope was always conducted on
0: a Sunday. Oh, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Come get your new pope. Big popes, little popes. Anti-popes all around, half off.
1: (laughs) Or maybe heads off. Something. So this is not a fact that has come up in the research until this point. So we don't know how long this has been a tradition for. But it comes up now. Because this surreptitious election of Eulalius did not happen on a Sunday. They were clearly trying to get ahead of the official election process.
0: Cheaters, pushing people, doing things ahead of schedule.
1: <laughs> Calling somebody in names, you know. They're, they're being sneaky sneaks. So, we're gonna see how this plays out. So, the next day, which happened to actually be Sunday... The official election took place on December 29th at the Basilica San Marco, and it was Boniface who was elected in majority. And on many accounts, he was elected very unwillingly to the papacy.
0: Oh, he didn't want to be?
1: He is an old man. He has served the church for so long. He is like, no, I want no part of this. I heard about what happened yesterday. No, thank you.
0: I mean, I wouldn't want to, like, because, uh, just if there's already an anti-pope, you just mm-hmm. know you're in for a bad time.
1: Like, the, the clergy is already totally, totally divided because you're following Pope Zosimus. And all of those messes he made, you are now responsible for cleaning up.
0: But, yeah, I wouldn't want it either.
1: Yeah, he doesn't want any of that. The church now has a major problem to deal with. And the support is fairly mixed, again, kind of like we saw with Damasus and Ursinus. The higher clergy supported the election of Boniface, and they were in the majority. But Eulalius had deacons and priests, and somehow also had the support of the bishop of Ostia, who we discussed back in Pope Mark's episode, which is episode 36. The bishop of Ostia is the bishop who consecrates the new pope. So he is supporting Eulalius for some reason. Although it is said that he has to be taken from his sickbed to come and support him. So this is a man who is sick and he has been dragged out of bed to support this man.
0: You know what? I would support whoever just so I could go nap again. Right? And you know, it's like, okay, the election's done. And then you hear about the election the next day and you're like, oh god, I already did it. Right? Don't make me get out of bed again. I am
1: (laughs) sick. So, the clashing starts pretty much immediately, to the point where the urban prefect of Rome, Aurelius Anicius Simicus, has to step in with his agents. And he threatens both sides. He warns them to keep peaceful, or else. We, we have seen what happens. We are not up for another massacre. Y'all better keep your tits settled. No party tits. Hakuna thy tatas. At the same time, as he's threatening them to keep their cool, Symmachus also writes to Emperor Honorius to inform him that there has been a split election.
0: It's still Emperor Honorius?
1: Yeah, he's around for so long.
0: How is he a le- around for so long? He's so awful. <laughs> Even though he's around for almost
1: 40 years, he kind of, like, isn't that old when he dies. Child emperors, it never works. Neither do child popes. We'll we'll get there too, but no.
0: He like he screwed everything up several popes ago, and he's still here. He's still around. Yeah. Don't people like stab Roman emperors? <laughs> I thought that was a thing. Oh, that is and will be a thing. How do he not
1: get stabbed yet? Well, you know, everything is just in so much chaos. So
0: there's no time to stab
1: him. Exactly. So. Symmachus has written to honorius and informs him of the split elections and he makes clear that since eulalius was the pope to be elected first he should be considered as the rightful pope
0: oh even
1: though they they kind of did it early on purpose so that would be the case and emperor honorius remember is governing from ravenna rather than rome so he isn't actually present to get any more information about what's going on any more than what he's getting from Symmachus. So he agrees with his prefect and officially acknowledges by decree that Eulalius should be recognized as the rightful bishop of Rome. So why are we talking about Boniface?
0: (laughs) I don't know, why?
1: When this decree is received in Rome, it leads to massive outbursts of violent clashes all over again, now on an escalated level. And because the prefect of the city supports Eulalius, Boniface is seized by the authorities and taken outside the walls of the city to be detained. So he's now been basically arrested and put on house arrest outside of the city. After this, Boniface's supporters immediately send an appeal to the emperor detailing the unofficial and unusual way in which Eulalius had been elected and how that is against standard church practice and entreat him to support Boniface instead as a pope legitimately elected by a majority of clergymen. And for once to his credit, when Honorius is made aware of this, he does send a decree to Rome, suspending his original decree, and now rather than taking everything on the word of a letter, he summons both Boniface and Eulalius to come to him for a hearing in February to hear out the actual merits of the case. So for once, he's kind of, sort of, did something right. Now, both men and their supporters do appear at this hearing to argue out the legitimacy of their election, but (laughs) this is where Honorius is Honorius again. A final decision is not made by the emperor. He decides that it would be more proper to have the judgment conducted by a synod of the actual church so he sets up a synod to occur in Spoleto on June 13th of the same year. So he could have made a decision and settled this, but he wants to actually do right by the church, but the church is not a position to really have it done right by at this point. But he also commands that until the time that this synod in Spoleto convenes and issues a judgment, both Boniface and Eulalius were to stay outside of Rome to keep the violence from reigniting. And at this point he also decrees that the Bishop of Spoleto would go to Rome to carry out the imminent mass of Easter in Rome, so that the very important religious rites would not be left unattended without a pope on hand for the city. We're gonna send you guys outside of the city to keep everybody calm, then we're gonna put somebody in your place to do these religious services that need to be done before that point. And in June we'll figure this all out. Now, at this point, it really does kind of look like Eulalius has the upper hand. He has the support of the urban prefect. The emperor acknowledged the fact that his election had come first. And it turned out that Constantius III, the future co-emperor and not-quite-yet-co-emperor, and his wife, Empress Galla Placidia, also supported the claim of Eulalius based on the fact that he was elected first. See how beneficial this whole sneaky thing was? Yeah. It's really working for them. Now, on Boniface's side, we have most of the nobles of Rome who saw the secret sneak election for what it was, but it still really looked like Eulalius was going to come out on top. So he was quite confident in his position. Too confident. Overconfident, if you will. And with all of this burgeoning confidence, Eulalius decides he's going to go back to Rome. He has the support of the authority, So he's going to come back to the city, reoccupy the Lateran Palace, and he is going to be the Pope to conduct the Easter Mass. And he thinks, this is a great idea. I have the majority of the support within the civil authority. I will start my papacy with a bold move. And so this is what he thinks, and this is what he does. He enters Rome on March 18th to do just that. But guess what happens next? something bad all of his imperial support disappeared the second that he disobeyed the imperial orders not to go to rome until the synod in Spoleto in june gone everyone was ready to abide by these rules and he has broken them so all of his support instantly vanishes so now Symmachus and his forces take the lateran seize eulalius and forcibly remove him from the city to detain him just like they had originally with Boniface. Meanwhile, the Liber Pontificalis tells us that Boniface celebrated Easter in the Basilica of St. Agnes, outside the walls, not breaking the rules. Now, the Archbishop of Spoleto, a man called Achilleus, did go ahead to perform the Easter Mass as the original plan had been. And Honorius is just absolutely furious that Eulalius disobeyed his command And so he full-on cancels that synod that was planned for Spoleto. And on April 3rd, he just outright recognizes Boniface as the official legitimate pope. Oh. Yeah, nope, no, you broke the rules, this is over and done with, you forfeit, he's the right guy. It's all over. By the time that all of this trouble is said and done, the emperor has put his foot down and the clergy of Rome accept their new pope, Boniface, so that they can get on with life. So finally, Boniface can get back to Rome on April 10th and get on to popin'.
0: Get on a
1: popin'. Getting on a popin'. And despite the fact that Boniface was not inclined to accept the papacy when he was elected, he now saw how incredibly important it was to get the church back into organized order and to reunify and restore a clear administration that had been all sort of disjointed by his predecessor. Zosimus had made a mess, and Boniface is going to spend a lot of his papacy cleaning it up. So one of the first things that Boniface turns his attention to was the situation with the Pelagians. Poor Pelagius. You'll remember from last week that the Pelagians were initially condemned by Pope Innocent I, then Zosimus had acquitted Pelagius and the Pelagians headed by Celestius, but then had changed his mind and recondemned the lot after the emperor outlawed them. And in the process of all this hubbub, Zosimus had really upset the churches in Africa, who had brought forth the initial condemnation only to have a pope undo and then redo all that work. Right? He called them hasty and uninformed, and they were not very happy with him. Boniface did not want to reopen this issue. But he did want to bring some clarity to it to ensure that the church position on Pelagianism was open, clear, and stable throughout the empire so that everybody gets on board and is on the same page. And this does mean that he maintained the condemnation against the Pelagians and their ideas of free will and God's grace in salvation. They are officially heresy, that part stays. And as we've discussed over the last two weeks with the Pelagians, their biggest theological opponent was St. Augustine who had actively written against their ideas and taken on the case against them as somewhat of a personal mission which to me still feels like a, a giant stomping on some ants but okay he argued that god's grace was an irresistible presence and that no earthly figure was capable of human perfection until the second coming so that all humans were in absolute need of the presence of god's grace boniface actively supports the writings of Augustine, even going so far as to send him letters that he had received from the Pelagians who had written to denounce and defame Augustine. Augustine would then dedicate several of his anti-Pelagian works to Boniface for the support, including the Contra Dues Epistolas Pelagianorum Libre Quitor, which is against the two letters of the Pelagians. And I'm just going to read you his introduction to Boniface. Quote, I had indeed known you by the praise of your renowned fame, and by very numerous and voracious messengers, I had learned how full you were with the grace of God, most blessed and venerable Pope Boniface. But after my brother Ali Pius saw you even in bodily presence and having been received by you with all kindness and sincerity, held at the bidding of affection conversations with you and living with you, and although only for a short time united with you in earnest affection poured out to your mind both himself and me, and brought you back to me in his mind. The more assured was your friendship, the greater became in me in the conviction of your holiness. For you, who mind not high things, however loftily you are placed, did not disdain to be a friend of the lowly, and return the love bestowed upon you. For what else is friendship which has its name from no other source than love? and is nowhere faithful but in Christ, in whom alone it can be eternal and happy, whence, also having received a greater assurance by means of that brother, through whom I have learned to know you more familiarly, I have ventured to write something to your blessedness concerning those things which are at this juncture are claiming by a later stimulus to the Episcopal care, as far as we are able, to vigilance on behalf of the Lord's flock. That is a bunch of, like, ooh, you're so wonderful, and I love you, and thank you so much, and I love you. Sure is. Yeah, he basically wrote some, like, fan letters to him in front of his book. He also influenced Emperor Honorius to expand on his outlery of the Pelagians by issuing a new edict which would make Pope Zosimus's Tractoria, which is the condemnation he wrote against Pelagianism, a mandatory doctrine for the Church. Now, whether or not he actually needed the emperor to enact this for it to be enforced is an interesting question we have to look at. Like, does the pope need the emperor at this point to see a uniform adherence to doctrine? Or is this Boniface's way of increasing his state with the emperor by supporting the decrees that the emperor already had in place? Or was this just the easiest form of dissemination to ensure that it reached all corners of the empire so that the position of the church could not be misunderstood? Could be any of those. But either way, it's pretty official from this point on that the church has condemned Pelagianism. And at least by this time, it's pretty well agreed that Pelagius had died, so his feelings don't have to be hurt anymore by these meany, meany popes. Then Boniface turned his attention to the other situation that Zosimus had created in Africa, when he had alienated the African bishops by allowing that priest Apiarius of Sicca to appeal directly to him when he had been excommunicated for various crimes and bypassed that whole actual process of appealing to the bishops first. And then, Pope Zosimus had threatened the bishops with excommunication if they hadn't accepted Apiarius back. While this was happening, the African bishops had called a council to be held in Carthage, determined to assert themselves over this overstep of Zosimus. Zosimus had sent legates to represent him in this council, and had made a total ass of himself by citing his authority to bypass the bishops as a precedent set in the Nicene Canons. But it wasn't in the Nicene Canons. And the African bishops wanted him to know that, and condemned the Pope for, quote, falsifying the texts of Canon 5 to justify his interference, and sent an epistle to remind him that the Canons of Nicaea said nothing about and gave no authority for the Pope to intercede on this kind of appeal. They even added in decisions on the council that if any clergy appealed to Rome the way Apiarius did, they would be cast out of the whole Church of Africa, full stop. So they're not letting this happen again. However, they did not, in this case, deny the supremacy of the Pope as a whole, and the letter did agree that the African Church would agree to abide by the falsely stated canon if it could be found elsewhere. That canon you wanted, it wasn't in Nicaea, but if you can actually find it, maybe we'll listen to it. But, as we know, the letter that they sent wasn't received by Zosimus, since he had died. It was received by Boniface on May 31st of 419. And this time, there was no threatening the bishops with excommunication. This is not Boniface's style. He received their irritation very, very well and likely because of the relationship between Augustine and Boniface, this situation doesn't go any further than that. Boniface accepts their frustrations and their reminders of boundaries, and the churches of Africa relent to him, and when the canon that Zosimus had incorrectly identified was verified as being from the Council of Sardica, they went, oh, okay, it's not the canon of Nicaea, but okay, we see that this came from somewhere. So everything's okay for now. The African church will continue to have frustrations with Roman intervention in the future, but so the situation isn't something that we're going to be done with, we'll have to put a pin in it, but for now, things are okay. And speaking of that relationship with Augustine, there was one mention in a book that I referenced for research in this time period called St. Augustine, A Life by Gary Willis, where he makes a reference to a moment. Where Augustine traveled a hundred and twenty miles from Hippo to Rome when he was in his late sixties to see Boniface and dissuade him from giving up the papacy to become a monk, which definitely seems like something Boniface would want to do. He didn't really want to be Pope in the first place, but I didn't see this mentioned in any other source, so it's kind of funny to think of old old Augustine trekking all this way to old old Boniface to be like, "No." Don't do it, man. However, there is one issue that Augustine and Boniface seem to kind of disagree on, and this is a case we have very, very little information on. This is the case of Anthony or Antonius of Fisula. Like, literally, when you try to search anything for any mention of this man, you just get a search result for fistulas.
0: Oh no, I hate those.
1: Yeah, that's not what I was looking for. Thanks, Google.
0: Why do they pull up fistulas?
1: I guess, fistula?
0: Fistulas? There's gotta be a lot of people with butt problems, then.
1: (laughs) Right? So, I don't know. It was just not what I was expecting to see. So, anyways, this priest had been deposed in a synod in Numidia, overseen by Augustine. We don't know why. At all. But for whatever reason... Boniface chose to affirm that Anthony could be restored if he was proven to be innocent of whatever he may have done. Now, this seems a little bit like a huge misstep when he saw what just happened to Zosimus for stepping in and doing this, but there's so little information available in this situation that we can't really elaborate on what happened with it or whether Augustine received it well or not, so... Maybe he didn't learn all of the lessons of Zosimus, or maybe they were just okay enough for that to happen. Either way, that's two problems down and another to go. So we've fixed the churches in Africa, we have officially condemned Pelagianism, and now we have to go to Gaul because we know that Zosimus had created a new metropolitan bishop in Gaul with his friend Patroclus, the Bishop of Arles, and granted him supremacy over the rest of the provincial bishops. This was his Vegas wedding bro-friend. And that had come with the concept that no bishop or clergyman from Gaul could visit Rome without a personal certificate of identification from Patroclus. And you'll remember that this went over so, so poorly, and the bishops of Vienne, Narbonne, and Marseille had written to the Pope to protest this new elevation, and he had told them, to accept it or be excommunicated. So the bishops hadn't liked that at all. And so now that there's a new pope, Boniface gets to step in and wants to make this situation right. So he restores the seas of Narbonne and Vienne to all of their previous authority, including free travel, and confirms that they are not subject to Arles. As much as Patroclus thinks they should be, no, 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 we're pulling back on that. He also reduces the authority and influence of the vicariate that Zosimus had bestowed on Arl, putting him back on equal footing with the others. So he is not above them now; he is equal with them. Let's just solve this problem. And when a new vacancy in the see of Lodève arrives, Boniface supported a candidate that was suggested by the bishop of Narbonne, rather than the candidate put forth by Patroclus of Arl, and then. He orders that the Bishop of Vélez, who was accused of some sort of crime, be tried properly by a Gallic Synod of the actual bishops of Gaul, and that he would fully support the decision that they made in the outcome. So in Gaul, he is equalizing and restoring and then reinforcing all of that with a level of validity by having them come together to determine the outcome of one of their own With a promise that he won't overrule them. So in this case, it's pretty much directly opposite to the way that Zosimus handled the situation. That's great! We have three problems mostly solved. But of course, Boniface kept with the concept of the primacy of the Pope in mind, and we see this very clearly in his involvement with Illyricum, which is essentially Dalmatia, modern-day Croatia, and Pannonia, which is modern-day hungary serbia and some of austria
0: only some of it just like you know just the chunk a small chunk a dash of austria
1: that'll go right up there with rex factor and ali talking about the left of france so at this time the bishop of constantinople had his sights set on illyricum as a sort of natural progression of his own expanding influence
0: he's such a bad dude (sighs)
1: the Bishop of Constantinople, Mm -hmm. they are constantly going to be a problem. For the next little while, they are always a problem. There's going to be schisms over these men.
0: Why do they think they're so important? Well, because they're the highest
1: authority within the new capital of the empire. Well, that's exactly how the Pope feels. He feels that so strongly. (laughs) (laughs) The Bishop of Constantinople is going, the emperor lives in my city. This is the most important city in the whole of the empire. I should be the most important bishop. And the Bishop of Rome's going,
0: <laughs> about it.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Fortunately, in this case for the Bishop of Rome, as we discussed in Innocence episode, episode 42, the Archbishop of Thessalonica, who is currently a man called Rufus, had been given special authority as a vicar of Rome And so they were essentially the largest obstacle to the encroachment of the Eastern influence of Constantinople. But he couldn't maintain all of Illyricum's obedience to Rome over Constantinople by himself without the active encouragement and attention of the Pope, right? He's kind of like, I'm holding it off over here, but don't let me drown. So Boniface dedicates a great deal of investment towards Illyricum, paying close attention to the religious climate and writing often with Rufus to stay up to date. But then a situation arose in about 421, where a bishop of Corinth was elected, and for reasons we don't know, Boniface refused to confirm the election of this particular candidate. And this frustrated and upset the Illyrian bishops. It would. So at this point, they turned to the new emperor in the east, Emperor Theodosius II, honorius is still there this is this is on the other side so arcadius is no longer there but theodosius is and he determined that the jurisdiction of illyricum would now go to constantinople first which of course as the emperor in constantinople this benefits him as much as the church and boniface is like no i absolutely will not let that stand he immediately issues an epistle to the east arriving in march of 422 that prohibited the future consecration of any bishop in Illyricum without Bishop Rufus's approval. And he went to the Western emperor, still Honorius, and detailed Theodosius's decision as a violation of the authority of the Apostolic See and had him write to Theodosius to insist that he pull back his decision. And in this, he actually wins. And Theodosius is persuaded to retract and confirm that Illyricum is still under the authority of the Pope only. That's pretty big. Awesome. Good for him. Unfortunately, despite Theodosius coming around, his decree that Constantinople maintained authority over Illyricum had been recorded in the law codes of Theodosius already, and were never struck out when he rescinded the ruling. So this law, even though it had been overturned, remained on the books all the way up to the Codex of Justinian in 534, and so that is going to cause some serious problems when we get there. Now, we're going to end Boniface's papacy on the other miscellaneous bits that come up to us from the Liber Pontificalis.
0: Oh, and not first. We didn't get it out of the way this time.
1: No, I've been kind of shunting building to the end, because it's just kind of like a good thing to end on is looking at some churches that these people built. So first, it is said that Boniface built an oratory in the cemetery of Felicitas near the grave of the titular martyr, Felicitas, and restored the actual sepulcher of Felicitas as well. Very popular saint in this era, so he just makes her wonderful.
0: Tell me all about them.
1: Yeah, she's one of those perpetual virginity martyrs who is part of that, like, seven martyrs philosophy that came out of it. There isn't actually as much historically documented sourcing on her, so she is the patron saint of parents who have lost a child in death or, like, death of children.
0: What a very depressing thing to be a saint of. Yeah, so she was one of those saints who refused to
1: lapse, become a lapsi eye basically, and her and her whole family were, like, totally beaten to death or beheaded, depending on what member of the family we're talking about.
0: Okay, so a lot like Saint Cecilia again.
1: Yes, very much so.
0: Yeah, so she is the patron
1: saint of very, very sad things, but she's very, very popular in this era, which is kind of a sad reflection of what's probably going on in Rome.
0: Well, I mean, Rome just got sacked not too long ago. Yeah, and it's not quite
1: done having problems yet, so... There's that, and Boniface has now made her place of worship and her cemetery, her sepulchre, all a lot more restored and beautiful. So He also, apparently, breathed new life into decrees that were originally credited to Pope Soder that forbade women from touching the sacred linens of mass or from burning incense.
0: Don't touch it with your lady hands.
1: No lady hands. Not so great there, and we have no insight as to why this was something that needed reiterating at the time.
0: Maybe there were a lot of ladies who were like, I'll do this laundry for you? I mean, but let them do the laundry then. No, no touch. Don't. Don't touch it.
1: No, no touchies. So, yeah. He also apparently passed a new law that forbade slaves from becoming clerics. Why? I don't know. It's really odd... Especially considering we've had popes that were former slaves.
0: Aren't they allowed to have faith? Yeah, well,
1: they're not allowed to be clerics.
0: What if they have deep
1: faith? There is some, like, speculation when they talk about it, like, you could go and get permission from your master and get freed to do it.
0: Yeah, what a good way
1: to just get out of that. That's all predicated on the fact that your master's gonna say yes. And I'm guessing that probably happens not. Never.
0: I mean, it might happen every once in a while. Like, maybe you have a really old master who's about to die and he doesn't need ten house slaves. Yeah, but
1: then that's the kind of situation where a lot of slaves get freed in wills. Hmm. But do you want to be freed only to become a cleric? I mean, it's just odd. My only real thought on this is maybe he's trying to prevent runaway slaves from coming to the church as a point of sanctuary. Because then it gets into the whole property law thing that happens with slaves that is so awful. So, maybe. But this is a thing he may have done. And now that we feel weird about him, Boniface died on (laughs) September 4th of 422.
0: I'm glad he died. (laughs) That he's not just out there somewhere hating women and slaves. I mean, we
1: started with a man who was known for great character. Moral upbringing, very charitable, like, perfect candidate for Pope. And now we're like, I'm glad he died. <laughs> Maybe it's not fair to put these bits at the end. <laughs>
0: Cancel culture.
1: Yeah. So, a while before his death, in July of 420, he had petitioned the emperor to set a new legal standard for the recognition of papal elections. In an attempt to prevent the return of schism and papal competition if he died.
0: Yeah, okay. To make it so that this stuff doesn't happen again. Yeah, he's
1: really, really sick, and there's probably people going, Eulalius, he's really sick, you can come back! Come back, he's so ill! He's so ill, and he's going, Okay, let's just make some kind of legislation to legitimize papal elections. That's what he wants to do. And he did, he got really, really sick, and this may have been the start of the illness that he would eventually die from, but he was sick enough that he was trying to ensure the papacy would stay secure after he was gone, so, you know, it was pretty serious at that time. And Honorius did secure that legacy by enacting a law that, in the event of a contested election, neither papal claimant would be recognized as the new pope. And a new election would be held instead. So, if this situation is to arrive again, they both just get immediately invalidated and a new election takes place. Sounds pretty good.
0: Seems like okay legislation just to keep it from being like, what if we get another damesis? Right.
1: But what happens if you have three claimants to the papal throne at once?
0: That made me tired. (laughs) It's
1: coming. Either way, uh, when Boniface did die in 422, there were measures at the ready. And he was buried in one of the chapels that he had founded at the Cemetery of Maximus on the Via Solaria, near the tomb of St. Felicitas. The chapel that Boniface had built there was in honor of her. She was apparently one of his favorite saints, to whom he prayed to regularly, and credited with aiding him during the whole process of him, you know, being apprehended and taken outside the city and then rightfully installed. So I haven't found anything about where his relics might have been moved to if he's been moved at all. So more likely he's been lost to history. But that's where he was at some point. It was next to Felicitas. And that's old Bonnie. We we need to raid him now and see how he does. Mm. Papatum and Phallium. Well, he fixed all of Zosimus' mistakes and stabilized the papacy. That's pretty good.
0: Yeah, Zosimus made a mess. He balanced the power
1: dynamic of the Gallic Church and restored relations with those frustrated bishops. Pretty good. He settled the unhappy African bishops and validated their desire for proper protocol. He didn't end this conflict entirely, but he brought it to a close for the time being while not giving up having that papal authority over them. He clarified and universalized church position on Pelagianism. He resisted Constantinople's attempt to usurp jurisdiction on Illyricum. His personal reputation was stellar, like zealous, active, fair, firm, charitable, wise, and fatherly. All pretty good. Working against him, he required the emperor to step in and make the Tractoria a mandatory church doctrine. And to have Theodosius rescind his decision on Illyricum. So we have to ask ourselves, with all of these good things, does that work against his papal impact that he's so reliant on the emperor?
0: Well, I mean, but is it so bad to ask for help sometimes? Or
1: is it a good sign that he has good influence over the emperor that he's actually able to turn to him and work together? So we could look at this either way. We we've got a lot of good things to judge him on, and he did clean up a lot of messes. He did. And then we can factor in whether we think it's bad to ask for help. So what do you want to give
0: him? I'm leaning towards, like, a six and a half. Okay. Is that
1: incorporating your feelings about asking for Imperial help?
0: And telling me I can't touch things.
1: Okay, that's fair. I'm going to give him two points for all of the problems that he solved for Zosimus, because Zosimus did a zero in this category. So that's six right there. And then I'm going to give him another point for his reputation. And I'm going to give him another point for resisting Constantinople. And then I'm going to take one point away because of the emperor thing, just because it's good and bad. So that will give him a seven. From me, so he gets a thirteen point five in this category.
0: Fructus prohibitum.
1: I mean, we just said his personal reputation is stellar. It's going to be hard to
0: find something in this category. Yeah, he didn't seem like he was tickling ears or anything.
1: No, he wasn't. I mean, we could try and credit him here for the violence caused by his election.
0: Um, that was the day before.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's more Zosimus's fault, I think. And moreover than that, when the emperor gets involved and says you both have to stay out of the city to prevent
0: violence, he's the one that listens. I think he has to get a zero. Seculari impactum. I mean, his election
1: wasn't officially recognized until the emperor stepped in. And the schism divided imperial authority on which pope they wanted to support. He caused a ruckus for the secular leaders.
0: Yeah, but it didn't really mess with the secular folks. So maybe like just a single point.
1: Okay, we'll give him a single point in that category. Do you want to give him a single point each? No, that's too many. So he gets a one for secular impact impactum. No, you know what? I got to give him more than that. So if you're giving him a one, I got to give him at least one more because he literally had... Placidia supporting him and simicus supporting him so i gotta give him at least a two okay that's a two for secular impactum
0: Fossium sanctus
1: okay this is an interesting one
0: all right show me his face
1: well hmm can i do that
0: not his face oh (laughs) we have a full-on profile
1: he does not want to show you his face.
0: No, he looks very reluctant. Yeah, I saw
1: this and my immediate thought was, I wonder if they painted him this way because he did not want to be Pope. Like, very clearly did not want to be Pope. Is that what's going on here?
0: He, he's he got a reluctant body language and he doesn't, he looks like he's he's about to walk away from you.
1: And he's turned his face into the shadows. Like, the top of his head is all shadowed. That's very, very much on purpose. And I mean, the other two images that we normally use are, they are depicted in very much the same way. He's always turning away from you like, nah.
0: That last one looks like Colin Mockery, though. (laughs) It does!
1: Colin Mockery with a tonsure.
0: Um, you know, I bet, I bet we could go through like some Who's line and find where he definitely put like a pool noodle on his head. (laughs) Totally. Or even a
1: wig. I mean, that seems like something they would do. Yeah, so, um, those- I've sent you two more pictures than what we normally rate on. So we'll go back to the first one, because it is very distinctive. What do you want to give him in this category?
0: He has a good brow. He's got a good- he's got a nice nose shape. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, his beard is a nice round shape. He doesn't have a weird ear.
1: We're going in deep.
0: Well, and then he's got he's got a huge upper shoulder there. Look at that.
1: Oh yeah, he's ripped he's
0: very ripped.
1: Yeah, those are some big traps.
0: huh. So I don't know, I'll give him like a I can give him a six.
1: Okay, that's pretty good. I I like it. It's different. I can't score him too high because he's not actually showing me his face.
0: Yeah, I mean he could he could be a Monet where if we got real close to him he would be a mess but. True,
1: true and I like that it's very deliberate what they've tried to do here with him. Like this is very much intentional. The fact that they've put in this extra shading and whatnot to make it look like he's turning away from you. I'm gonna match your six for sure because I quite like it but again, no face so.
0: It's definitely different.
1: Yeah I like it. So we're gonna give him a 12 in this category, which gives him a 3 overall.
0: Colin Mockery doesn't have an overly bony face, so... He does not. He
1: kind of has a squishy baby face, but that's okay.
0: We still love him. We do. Tempus Pontificus.
1: December 23rd, 418 to September 4th, 422. Four years is a
0: score of 1. That's quite a lot of years considering. Well, considering how bad Zosimus messed
1: everything up in like a year. It's pretty good.
0: Alright everybody, it's the Canon Bonus Round do, 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 do. Yes,
1: he is a saint. His feast day is October twenty fifth, and he is the patron saint of things. What are they? So many things. So I have a list
0: for you. Are they sad things?
1: They are not really sad things. So we're good on that. So he is listed as the patron saint of Brewers, the patron saint of Fulda, Germany, and World Youth Day.
0: Oh, World Youth Day. That thing that they they got mad at Francis for.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to go into a little look deeper at this. If you Google things, the patron saint of Brewers is St. Augustine, so maybe there's two patron saint of Brewers. Fulda's Boniface is a different saint Boniface, not even one of the Pope Bonifaces. And the reason he's a patron saint of World Youth Day is that World Youth Day, a representative number of patron saints every year for whatever reason, and they don't keep a list. So he was probably a patron saint of World Youth Day at some time in the past because he's not the patron saint this year. This year it was St. Joselito, St. Juan Diego, St. John Paul II, St. Martin de Porres, St. John Bosco, St. Rosa of Lima, Sister Romero Menenses, and St. Oscar Romero, of course. So we're going to at least give him World Youth Day because that is the most accurate one because, yeah, he actually gets to be a real patron saint. His total score is a 20.5. Well, I have feelings about that. Yes? He scored a point and a half higher than Zosimus. And we gave Zosimus like a zero in almost every
0: category. That's because Zosimus, uh, I don't know, looked good. I forgot why we gave Scandal, maybe?
1: He got a lot of Scandal points, yeah. (laughs) But it's
0: pretty much the only reason.
1: We're gonna go over these scores quickly. In Papatum and Thallium, Zosimus got a zero. Boniface got a 13 and a half. In fructus Prohibitum, Zosimus got a 15, Boniface got a 0. In Seculari Impactum, Zosimus got a 0, Boniface got a 2. Facium Sanctus, he got a- Zosimus got a 2.5, Boniface got a 3. Tempus Pontificus, 0.5 for Zosimus, and 1 for Boniface, so it's- And they both got canon bonus rounds, so- Oh gosh, that's too close. Did we not rate him high enough? I think Ooh. I don't
0: know. All of Zosimus was score was scandal, basically. Yeah. And we can't go back and give Boniface any scandal because he was a good boy.
1: No. We cannot. So that's fair, but I mean I feel weird about it. I stand by this entirely subjective voting process and awarding of points. But it's weird. So maybe that belies some of my feelings when we go into asking whether he was papally enough pizzazzy enough, and worthy of a papal bull? No. No? No. You don't want to give it to him? You know, maybe I would be more inclined to give it to him if I could touch things. But he says I can no touchy, so what if the papal bull is written on sacred linens? (laughs) You're not going to get it that way, then, are you? So it's hidden under the sacred linens and we can't touch it. Yeah, so um, I will agree with your no. He was much, much better than his predecessor, though. So I will give him that. He tried. And on that note, we're going to cut it here because as you can hear and have heard for this whole episode, I am consistently losing my voice. Um, We will try and tack on the new Pope Watch at the end of this episode. You'll probably hear me sounding much better, recorded at a different time. But for now, we can say thank you and goodbye. Bye! And now, it's time for Pope Watch. Are you ready for big news about Pope Francis? Sure. Okay. So, the second of Pope Francis's muto proprio decrees since the PBC 2019 Church Council on the Sex Abuse Crisis was issued on May 9th, 2019. And this time, it is a set of laws that mandates all members of the Catholic religious order of any level and encourages even laity to report suspicions of abuse or a cover-up situation. So this is a big one. We are setting some new precedent here. These new laws were issued in an apostolic letter titled Vox Itis Lux Mundi, which is You Are the Light of the World, And all of these new procedures will go into full effect as of June 1st. This letter is written in 19 articles, divided into two parts. The first part deals with the new policies of mandated reporting for suspicions or evidence of sexual abuse, quote, anyone who has notice or well-founded motives to believe something has occurred, end quote, and cover-ups. The policy informs all members of the church that they are now obligated to report to their bishop or superior up to and including having direct communication with the Vatican, if, for example, like, the perpetrator is an archbishop or such a high rank. It also requires every Catholic diocese in the world to create and implement procedures for reporting to be in place by June 1st of 2020 one year after all of these decrees go into full place. It also elaborates on what behavior is actually mandated for reporting, including sexual abuse of a minor or vulnerable persons, possession or distribution of child pornography, or, quote, forced by violence or abuse of authority to perform or submit to sexual acts, end quote, and gives a step-by-step procedure to follow and I'm going to quote that directly from the website for you. One, a person alleging abuse or cover-up by a prelate makes a report to their bishop, the Vatican, or a church's ambassador in their country. Two, if that abuse or cover-up involves a prelate, the bishop or superior receiving the report is obligated to forward it both to the Vatican and the Metropolitan Archbishop of their regional province. Three, once that report has been filed, The Metropolitan Archbishop is to ask the Vatican for authority to conduct an investigation. Four, after receiving proper authority, the Metropolitan conducts the investigation, sending reports to the Vatican on its status every 30 days. The initial time frame for the investigation is 90 days, but it can be extended. And five, once the investigation is finished, the Metropolitan is to communicate its results and his opinion on the matter to the Vatican for a final determination of the outcome for the bishop in question. So it's pretty, like, straightforward and laid out. This is what you do now. If you were confused before, here you go. Good. Right? The second part of the letter deals with accountability for cover-ups and sets several precedents that will allow archbishops the authority to conduct investigations within their jurisdictions with help from the forthcoming Vatican task force. Now look. The one thing that these procedures do not do is mandate reporting to the civil authorities. And the reason that they give for this is, quote, because of the ways different cultures handle sexual abuse issues. My personal thought on that is it's pretty feeble, and legal authorities should always be the first mandate, but I am not going to discount the whole of these new precedents and new laws just because the first step doesn't go all the way yet. This is something that's actually happening, and it's pretty, pretty substantial. And we will end with Francis's comments on the new steps, justifying his new decrees. He says he, quote, created the new laws so the church will continue to learn from the bitter lessons of the past, looking with hope towards the future. The crimes of sexual abuse offend our Lord, cause physical, psychological, and spiritual damage to the victims and harm the community of the faithful. In order that these phenomena in all their forms never happen again, a continuous and profound conversion of hearts is needed, attested by concrete and effective actions that involve everyone in the church.